I never used to care about politics, but I feel like I have to these days. I can't avoid it. I used to think about what songs to put on my iPod and which Subway sandwich offered the ideal balance of flavor and texture. Now it's all President Trump this, liberal media bias that, and you know, I've picked my side. I have my preferences. I know the political perspective that sits well with me. But does everyone? If you're listening to this podcast, then you're probably the kind of person who's checked into politics and knows at least a little bit about liberal versus conservative viewpoints. And sure, the political pundits and Washington insiders seem to have a firm grasp on what team everybody's on. But how do most people think about politics? Turns out, most people don't get too far past Democrat versus Republican. The nuances of a liberal or conservative ideology? Well, they don't mean much to the general public. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about the science of our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell, and to learn more about political ideology, I talked to Nathan Calmo. He's a political scientist and associate professor of political communication at Louisiana State University. In 2017, he co-authored the book Neither Liberal Nor Conservative, Ideological Innocence in the American Public. So we talked about his research on how political ideology means different things to political leaders than it does to the general public how lots of people tend to avoid describing themselves as liberal or conservative, but how they nevertheless seem perfectly comfortable identifying as Democrat or Republican. I actually wanted to start by saying that the paper that you wrote for political psychology, Uses and Abuses of Ideology, changed the way I think about ideology. Oh, good. I wanted to, to say that because I know in this world you can work so hard on something and it goes out into a void and you don't know what impact it has. But but it totally was uh, an eye-opening moment for me. As someone who's kind of on the fringes of doing work that kind of touches on ideology, I never really had to think too deeply about it. But mm -hmm. So I read that and then I ended up reading the, the book that you were on, The Neither Liberal Nor Conservative. And I was like, gosh, all right, ideology is something a little bit different. So I wanted, I wanted to put that out there. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's very nice. And so you're also the first person on this show that I've talked to who I've not met before personally. Uh, so I want I was hoping that maybe just to start, you could talk about kind of where you come from and, and what, what led you to explore questions about political science in general and, and ideology more specifically. Sure. Um, as of August, I'm going to be an associate professor of political communication at LSU. Just got the promotion. So that's exciting. I'm trained as a political scientist at University of Michigan is where I got my PhD. And I mostly study public opinion and communication effects with a lot of psychology and history wrapped in. Um, I did my undergrad work at University of Wisconsin, and I've just always been interested in politics and history, at least since elementary school. Some of that really began to consolidate uh, during college when I uh, was thinking about the Iraq war in particular, and I wanted to know why Nearly all Republicans in the public and about half of Democrats supported what seemed like a, a terrible and immoral idea to me. And that seemed clear, but um, I wanted to understand why other people didn't see it the same way that uh, I saw it at that time. So that got me really focused, not just on 
um, politics and and how it makes a difference in people's lives, but also thinking about public opinion in particular. What are the ingredients that lead people to think about politics the way they do? What causes them to change their minds about politics uh, when they do? And and that was sort of the introduction into Phil Converse and, and ideology and uh, and the role of partisan identity and how that's distinct from ideology in some important ways. Just to situate this historically, what has historically been the view of ideology or how the public thinks about public opinion? I know you draw on the Converse stuff a lot and sort of end up going, hey, Converse kind of knew what, what he was talking about. So historically, what was the way we thought about things and how has that morphed over time just to kind of set us up for what you've found? Sure. The conventional wisdom has often assumed that we see a lot of how leaders think about politics and how they act in politics and just basically mirror that onto an impression of how the public thinks about politics. Uh, That was true in the 19th century. That was true in the early 20th century. And then you start to have some thinkers uh, initially not um, quantitative oriented. You've got uh, Walter Littman, who was a a journalist and social commentator in the um, early 20th century, who begins to push back really strongly on this idea saying maybe the, the public is not like leaders. In particular, the way they think about politics might be much more simplistic than the way that leaders think about politics. And that has really important ramifications for the broader structure of their views um, and the kinds of things that, that influence uh, the ways they think about politics. Uh, I think Converse in the, the 1960s, he was a, a, a psychologist, social psychologist trained at Michigan and ended up in the political science department at Michigan. And his intervention was, was bringing a heavy dose of social psychology to the study of public opinion and voting in particular. And he quantitatively took up this question of comparing uh, elite attitudes and ordinary attitudes in the public and basically confirmed this suspicion that, that Lippmann and a couple others had raised, which is that the, the structure, the stability, the coherence and the potency of, of policy attitudes and values and other things in the public is far weaker um, and far less developed than it is among political elites. But he also made this important caveat that there's a huge stratification within the public. The most knowledgeable people in the, the public think and act much differently than people, maybe the majority, um, who are low in political knowledge and low in political engagement. And that's one of the, the big uh, conclusions that we take away from Converse and, and those who have followed in his footsteps is, is that there's huge stratification in the public, that even though we say the public overall is not very ideological in contrast with political leaders, that there's big variation within the public. The most knowledgeable still don't reach the level of, of political leaders because they're not professional politically involved people, um, but they are night and day different from from most other people in the public. So I think uh, we continue to have a conventional wisdom, particularly among people who aren't involved in public opinion research, that continues to go back to that old way of thinking that, well, the public is probably just like leaders. And we continually have to sort of remind that there's big exceptions and that maybe you can say that about a, a third or a quarter of the public, but not the whole public. And just one final thought on this, one reason why we make this mistake so often and and continue to make it is that the information we get about the public tends to be from the news. And news focuses on the activists because 
Um, they, it, it's most interesting to hear about people who have clear ways of thinking about politics and they're most uh, public in their actions. And they often are quite strident in how they, they present their views. And all of those things attract news coverage and give people a distorted picture of the overall public because they just think of about activists on each side yelling at each other as representative of the public when that's not what the majority of the people think. Yeah, I was going to ask about why there is that distorted view of public political thinking. So it sounds like at least a good amount of it is that we're just receiving a distorted or biased picture of what the public thinks about politics. And the message we're getting is, oh, gosh, everyone seems to have this all figured out. I guess that's how people work. They've they've decided and they've thought through it. And now they have these coherent views. Is there any other reason why why you can think that that we've wrongly assumed that the public in general has coherent political opinions? Yeah, I think so. Um, be, beyond the news, you have uh, leaders who people vote for, and they often, almost always, are, are representing a party, and they have their own views that often align with that party. And there's an, an easy assumption that if people are voting for a person, if they're voting for a party, that they are implicitly or explicitly endorsing everything that that person or that party has uh, represented in terms of their views. and. I think that aspect uh, leads people astray. And that also points to what I think we'll talk a little bit more about, the the distinction between ideology and policy views and partisanship as uh, a way of guiding how people make decisions about who they're going to vote for and every other way that they, they think about the political world. And, and the big picture here is you can think back to um, – I'm, I'm going to get on thin ice here, but, but sort of enlightenment thinking and, and rational – uh, ways of thought and and at least a, a hope, uh, if not an expectation, that people are going to be reasoning about uh, the decisions that they make in life and and thinking that people should be making their choices in politics based on a careful weighing of all of the information uh, available to them and uh, making adjustments as necessary that are that would map onto whatever we consider to be rational. And I, th I think that sort of normative view infuses um, and maybe colors our perceptions of, of how people actually think about politics. Uh, Gina, has anyone looked at like the public's own perceptions of how coherent everyone else's attitudes are? So this is kind of like, you know, as, as researchers, people might be um, biased to think that everyone has uh, coherent opinions. And maybe it's also that like knowledgeable subset of the public who would, through kind of like a false consensus effect, think like, well, I have a coherent ideology. Obviously, everyone else does. And so as you were kind of talking about that rational ideal, I was wondering about that subset of the population who doesn't tend to have a super coherent set of attitudes. Are they looking at elites and going, oh, gosh, I guess I'm the only one who hasn't figured this all out? Um or maybe this this biased perception is restricted really to those most knowledgeable as well. I didn't know if anyone's worked on that. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, we definitely have survey questions that ask people to place the parties in general as as which one is more liberal or conservative. Uh, we also sometimes ask the public to to place the party which party is more hostile towards immigration or. Um, generally wants lower taxes for businesses or those kinds of things. Um, we don't have questions about 
the perceived coherence of, of, of political beliefs in, in the same uh, or extended kind of a way. It, it turns out people are not especially good at, at making those kinds of placements hmm. um, at, at, for ideological placement for the parties overall, which, which could reflect the public or leadership. Um, about three quarters of people get those questions right, which sounds really great. But then you remember that there's only two options. And so there's a, <laughs> a 50% chance that they're going to get it right just by guessing. So mm-hmm. roughly, we, if we were going to try to extrapolate from that, we might say maybe half of the public knows that Republicans are more conservative than, than Democrats, which, which starts to undercut this idea that people have a clear sense of, of what ideological terms mean. Yeah. So what, uh, just to kind of then pivot to the the data that you've looked at, what are, based on what we know, r- regardless of what people have said in the past, right? Now that we have a picture of, of current politics, what might surprise people about the layout of ideology in the public? Yeah. So uh, a simple way of saying it is that most Americans are partisan, which par- partly leads to the confusion, but most are not ideological. So uh, some examples of that would be that about 90% of the public has a pretty clear idea of which party they like, which they favor, and which they might even think of themselves as belonging to or being attached to that party. Um, so that's the, the partisan aspect. And about 90% of people who have those orientations are voting consistently for the, the candidates from that party. On the other hand, for ideology, about um, half of the public declines to call themselves liberal or conservative. And uh, more than half don't hold consistently liberal or conservative attitudes or use broad political principles to consistently make their choices. And the the key factor there is that real ideology requires the knowledge to make the connections between those things. And most people lack that knowledge on average. Maybe one in three or one in four have that level of sophistication to do that well. And Party and partisanship are strong influences on public opinion, not just for voting, but beyond it, regardless of, of political knowledge. Um, so that's a, a, a key conclusion that jumps out and really reinforces that idea that um, most of the public is not ideological in the way that leaders are, and that uh, partisanship is easily mistaken uh, for ideology. Um, a couple other things that that jump out that are interesting. If I actually, could, I'm going to pause oh, you sure. there, just to make it super clear. What, how should we think of the difference between ideology and partisanship? Because I could see people going, "Well, I hear liberal and I hear democrat, and I feel like those are the same word. Why are why are they not the same word?" So, what do you actually mean by ideology, and how's that different from partisanship? That's a great question. So, uh, political scientists and and public opinion scholars within that field, in particular, make sharp distinctions between uh, social identities, which for us include not just race and religion, but also partisanship, that it functions as a kind of a social identity in terms of being socialized by by parents, uh, us versus them mentality, and some of the other things that Tajfel and Turner and other group-oriented psychologists have, have told us about, um, that those social identities are related to but distinct from attitudes about social groups, uh, in-group attitudes and out-group attitudes, and that those are also distinct from ideology, which we normally define in terms of uh, a couple ways. Uh, An organization of views, which could come from a lot of different sources, including social identities and group attitudes, but also a sense that ideology really is about a set of organizing principles, that it's about ideas 
and not just about structure. So when we say that the public isn't ideological, uh, part of what we're saying is that they have poorly developed systems of beliefs, that the interconnection between ideas are, are relatively weak. Um, but we're also making a distinction saying to the extent that there is structure, it's more a function of the groups you identify with and how you feel about other groups in society than it is about ideology and in a sense of ideas like, uh, or even values like uh, egalitarianism or uh, traditionalism. Um, th those are uh, ideas that are important for some people, but they're, they're not very coherent for most people or uh, applied consistently um, within politics among people who aren't higher in political knowledge. I'm working through an analogy here. So we're going to together see where it breaks down because I'm thinking of like like a cable package, right? Where you go, mm -hmm. this is a set of channels that you're going to get when you sign up with us, right? And for some people, it's like, oh, perfect. All 50 of these channels are perfectly aligned with my interests. And so super, this is, I've, I've, I've pre-selected the package that fits me. Whereas others go like, well, there are a couple channels in the package that I like, but I have to get the whole package if I'm going to sign up for that identity. Does that, that's maybe bizarre. Is that at all related to this idea of like ideology as a set or system of beliefs that either can cohere when someone puts them all together or, or can sort of be a disjointed package um, for people who you would say don't have an ideology, strictly speaking? The, the way I would extend that metaphor is I would say it still relies on the idea that the, the starting point for making decisions is that there are certain channels that you like. Mm -hmm. uh, you might not like all of the channels that are offered by the cable package, but you might like enough, at least compared to the alternative. If I could sort of extend the metaphor, I would say the group aspects are that you just know that, that people from, from your group like Comcast and people from the other group like AT&T and, and it seems to be okay for, for the people you know and so you're going to stick with that. Um, that's kind of a, a group-oriented way. So it's saying the, the group is really pointing you toward which party is going to represent your group's interests the, the best. Um, and another way that the, the metaphor can be extended is that the reason that you have some of those views is because you heard either the party that you follow talking about those things, or you heard your your social group that you follow talking about those things. And so it's not that you had a, a set of principles and you've thought hard about, about the, the various policy options and you've picked out which ones match those principles. It's more like you don't have time to engage in, in politics. Politics, is, turns out, is really complicated on, on most issues. And so you use as a heuristic uh, this opinion leadership mechanism that you say, I don't really know, so I'm going to go with these people I trust, how, how they think about politics. And so the causal arrow might be reversed. It might be because, because you're a Comcast person, you like the channels that Comcast is, is offering you. Yeah, or, or in my neighborhood, the only hookup available in this apartment building is is a Comcast hookup. And so I go, oh, I've never watched this channel, but I guess now I have it. I'll, I'll see what I think. Okay, all right. Yeah. Maybe that metaphor works. I wasn't yeah, sure when I, like I started, it. but uh, it, it was just kind of getting at that idea of, yeah, it's like a ideology as a system or set or network of thoughts, beliefs, and, and values that kind of congeal together into some sort of meaningful set, right? That's mm -hmm. what it means to be ideologically coherent. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, there's a couple of different ways of, of going about it. One of the brilliant things, um, just to continue touting converse, 
um, is that he, in his initial studies, tried to give the public all possible opportunities to show that they were ideological, that they had some signs of, of ideology. So the first thing he did, instead of giving them set closed-ended survey questions, is he said, tell me what you like and dislike about the parties. And then he looked for the, the style of reasoning or the, the kinds of things that people listed in giving the reasons for supporting one side or another to, to see whether they were talking about ideology and principles or whether they were talking about groups or um, more morselized things about individual candidate personalities or those kinds of things. And very few had uh, ideological or principled uh, mentions the biggest category were people who made reference to social groups like labor or race or religion. Then he um, took a step further and said, well, do people know what the ideological terms mean and can they assign them coherently? And as I mentioned earlier, people had trouble identifying which party was more liberal or conservative. And when asked, even among those who did correctly answer that question, when asked what it meant, um, they weren't able to give much of a substantive answer to, to explain that when asked directly. Um, next, he looked at the coherence of, of views, the constellations, and whether they, across the public, organized in sort of polar relationships that looked, in a unidimensional sense, looked liberal or conservative, and found very little evidence of that kind of uh, liberal conservative organization throughout the public, certainly not to the degree of political leaders. But then he said there might be a variety of ideologies that people can have besides this one-dimensional um, liberal conservative orientation. At minimum, if, if people have a consistent belief system, they should show stability in their policy attitudes uh, on specific items over time. And, and even there, he found that most of the public was responding uh, essentially, it, it looked at random. Um, the amount of instability over time and how that looked across multiple waves basically told him that that the majority of people are are not consistent in in their individual policy views. And so that was the um, the broadest test that allowed people to have some kind of an idiosyncratic organization, but hold that consistently over time. And and he didn't find that. Uh, another reason why. This is so complicated. I alluded to, uh, in terms of political rhetoric, there's this increasing conflation between, as you said, Republicans and conservatives as labels and Democrats and liberals as labels. And so people who pay attention are noticing that. And partisans are increasingly aligned in calling themselves the ideological label that matches the, the views of their party label. But even still, you only about half of the public is a Democrat who says they're a liberal or a conservative who uh, says they're a Republican. So it's, it's still limited, even though that's been increasing over time. So um, those are a couple ways that the combination of these things going together and the, the general lack in the research uh, field of, of frequently having panel studies where you're re-interviewing the same people over many years that help to, to show this has limited our ability to, to pull these things apart to, to some degree, but, but hopefully that helps to, to clarify a little bit. Yeah. So we can, we can go back to, you were, you were talking about the, the data that you've had and, and you were just starting to say that the majority of people fail to even take on a liberal or conservative label, even though they're happy to take on a Democrat or Republican label. And so you were, you were on, you were on the edge of, of saying some other things that you find interesting there. So I'm going to give you that chance to say that again. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, 
we, we think that that one of the main reasons that it's easier for people to use uh, partisanship than it is for them to use uh, ideology is because our politics are oriented around parties. Um, you could you could think about ways that maybe that they're oriented uh, inconsistently around ideologies as well uh, among elites, but ultimately when you go to the ballot box, you cast a vote for a party. You don't cast a vote for an ideology. Um, you could say, well, what if they were called conservative and liberal on the ballot instead of uh, Republican and Democrat? Uh, then that would still be the, the group label, you know, even if we switched in the ideological terms, as is the case in, in some other countries. So uh, there's a there's an orientation of politics around party in a way that um, it's not oriented around ideology. Another way of thinking about this that that complicates even the ideological interpretation of parties is that political scientists say parties are ultimately coalitions of various interest groups. Some are broad social groups, uh, others are sort of narrow uh, business interests or other kinds of of interests, and they assemble a package of policies into a platform that cater to the the individual groups within their coalitions. And oftentimes those are creating kind of arbitrary collections of policy positions that don't neatly fit into a liberal or conservative framework. Or if you look at at the details, um, even among leaders, the reasons that they're arguing for one policy, they'll, they'll flip the next time there's a different policy that seems to advantage the groups in their coalition. So even among leaders, I don't want to overstate the amount that that they are ideological or principled or consistent. Uh, in in some ways, my cynical way of representing it is that leaders know how to talk a good game. They they know what principles are and they know how to rationalize their decisions within those um, principled frameworks. But they know that there's a lot of different principles they could draw on, and they they draw on them as a matter of convenience based on the particular ends that they seek rather than being consistent. You get some uh, exceptions, maybe some libertarians who are always about less government, but um, generally among party elites, you, you don't see that. But I've gotten off track. I'm, I'm talking about leaders well, actually, now. But- so it raises a question about what ideology is, because the question is like, where did those sets of beliefs come from? Is there like a natural ideology? Like if you just, like you said, if you're looking for coherence in opinions, do there is there a natural clumping into liberal versus conservative? Or more like what you were saying, are these just systems that are getting set by elites? Yeah, so I'm not arguing that there aren't ideas about politics. And it's certainly the case that those uh, may uh, flavor or infuse the decisions that people are making, particularly when they're more sophisticated uh, about politics. If you look over time, it's easy to see this idea that uh, some people are in favor of more egalitarian ways of structuring society. Um, Others are towards more hierarchical forms you have some people who are more open to change, some people who are more resistant to change. They either want to keep things as they are, or they think that things need to be uh, shaken up and, and redone to, to make society better in some way. Oftentimes, those things are related. Um, but even so, it's, it's difficult to find uh, a level of consistency that goes beyond the more group-based and sort of narrow aims of, of people within a particular decision-making framework. 
um, on, on specific policies. And so I think there are ideas. I think it, there's the possibility of, of principled politics. And I, to, to circle back to the psychology of ideology, I really do believe there are personality factors, individual differences that predispose people to be um, inclined to uh, support what we would recognize as a more conservative outcomes or more liberal outcomes that, that fit with those some of those ideas, but that to the extent that those have much potency at all in going from psychology into the world of politics, people need that political knowledge to make that connection. So it's a fraction of people that are are making those kinds of connections. There you see really strong relationships between those psychological predispositions and uh, political outcomes. But for most of the public, you don't. And and that's um, kind of one of the, the main takeaways that, that we have, not just for the structure of ideology generally, but also the role of individual psychology uh, as it connects with politics. And um, just to, to circle back one more time, making sure that we're bringing in that social identity psychology into the mix of, of understanding how people think about politics. And I would argue that the social identity aspects of politics are a better explanation or account for more of the the variance in in outcomes than these idea-based or personality-based explanations. The data that you have to me that were most striking were comparing ideology labels to partisan labels, especially on like stability over time, where people, if I'm a Democrat today, reach out to me next year, I'll tell you I'm a Democrat. But when people say I'm very liberal, slightly liberal, that is isn't as stable. Are there are there other things that you could point to that that really show that stark contrast? Sure. So, uh, one of the the canonical examples in trying to bring ideology really strongly back into psychology is is from John Jost about about fifteen years ago. He wrote uh, an article called "The End of the End of Ideology," um, which uh, addressed Converse, but also a number of other um, public thinkers. And who were arguing that ideology had a smaller place in, especially the the, the post Cold War world. Um, one of the things that he shows in the article is that there is a eighty percent level of alignment between how people are uh, casting their ballots and their ideological identification, at least among the the people who are in the the four outlying categories of this seven-point scale of ideological identification from extremely liberal to extremely conservative. And he says, this is really strong evidence that ideology is corresponding with, if not causing, how people are, are voting. The challenge with that interpretation is that those four categories that he points to only include just over a quarter of all voters. So 28% of voters fall into those four outlying categories. So there is a high amount of correspondence between their ideological identification and how they voted, but it actually fits our our more limited perception of the role of ideology because it's only accounting for the quarter of the public that is most sophisticated. In contrast, partisanship correlates much more strongly with party identification correlates much more strongly with presidential voting and, and other partisan voting. And 62% of voters fall in the outlying four polar categories of strong Democrat to strong Republican. And their level of party loyalty is between 70 and 100%, basically. So in terms of both the distribution of 
uh, identification of, of people choosing labels for themselves that are further out in the polls and the potency of those identifications, partisanship is stronger in terms of the number of people choosing substantive positions and the potency of those in predicting how people are going to vote. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that is that, I mean, also what you're getting at is that it's among those most knowledgeable people, ideology labels do mean something, right? So this isn't to say we cast them aside and, and they never meant anything to anyone. It's just saying that that it's not for everyone that they carry this meaning, but they can carry that kind of meaning. And to me, what's interesting is that this is what makes it surprising is that the people who are most likely to hear this message are probably more politically knowledgeable and savvy. And so it's like, it sounds crazy that 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 these labels don't carry any meaning. And I had a friend who told me that he was canvassing for a, an election a, a little while ago. And he said, wow, this was really useful because you go to these houses and people are like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I think I've heard some people say that they don't like Trump, but I don't what is what are their reasons why? And you go, oh, OK, yeah, not everyone is closely monitoring the back and forth of political rhetoric. Exactly. That's a that's a really important point that I in in my various explanations is is one that I skipped over. It's that the people who try to assess the the public, um, the, so pundits as well as researchers, are in social circles in which most people are ideologues, and and that um, predisposes us to to misidentify and sort of assume that other people are like ourselves, and we're we're definitely very weird. <laughs> Yeah. Have you been thinking about any of this in the context of the coronavirus stuff? So there's been some, from what I've seen, some of the good polling data suggesting that this is like a historic moment where these partisan divisions are relatively weak and that you're seeing lots of people getting on board with all these measures. But by the same token, it feels like all you ever see is stark political differences in how seriously people are taking this. And so I, I wasn't sure if, if you've been looking at any of those data or thinking about how these kinds of partisan social identities versus ideological attitudes are affecting how people are taking this moment in time. Yeah. So my quick reaction is that the the predictions of partisan upheaval and, and resorting and reorienting are, are, are way overblown to the point where I expect that the voting outcome in in November, assuming that that goes forward, is um, is going to look almost exactly like it did in 2016 uh, at the individual level, at the regional level, at the national level in terms of vote shares, um, which is different than what uh, even a lot of political science models of elections would predict. They say if the economy is is doing poorly, let alone at Great Depression levels, the incumbent is going to get seriously punished, and likewise. Some have argued that uh, in times of war or other um, really costly national dilemmas, that the 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 more pain it inf- uh, inflicts on the public, the more they're going to punish the people who are in charge. And we don't see any evidence of either the economic um, depression, really, or a hundred thousand people dying of this of this virus, based at least in part on gross mismanagement by political leaders is having any impact on presidential voting preferences looking forward to November or President Trump's approval ratings at this time. And so it's true that we have uh, the potential for 
major events to overturn how how people are thinking, get, get them out of their habits, especially the anxieties and fears that come along with these terrible events are at least the emotional antecedents that can lead people to rethink their old habits. But we don't see any evidence of that happening. And in some ways, uh, events that are serious crises can really just reinforce the the, the behaviors that, that people are doing as they move in, I guess you could call them conservative directions, they circle the wagons, they go with the, the people they trust the most um, to try to get them through the, the difficult circumstances. And that in, in the political sphere is is party. Yeah. And it seems just in general, like in moments of uncertainty or anxiety, you would lean on social identities and communities, right? And those are going to get conflated with with political outcomes as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, it's an interesting moment. I think everyone has, when this whole thing started, was wondering like, oh, what is this going to do to the political landscape, especially given sort of the proximity to the next national election? Right. So yeah, interesting to hear to hear your thoughts on that. To wrap up, I was just thinking that uh, this is not all that you do work on. So what what kinds of other, just, just as an interesting uh, way to, to conclude, what, what are the other kinds of things that you are interested in or, or what's, what, what's the most exciting thing on the horizon for you and your research? So the most exciting thing for me is uh, I have a, a book coming out in August called With Ballots and Bullets, Partisanship and Violence in the American Civil War. So this is continuing to focus on partisanship um, and bringing in my interest in, in history as well as psychology and um, trying to quantitatively analyze the extent to which partisanship uh, and party identities, the relationship between party leaders and party followers in the public influenced the mobilization within the North uh, into the, the Union armies or resistance to participating in the war effort. Um, and then uh, looking at the the effects of the war itself on uh, local communities in terms of how local participation in the war and especially local casualties affected voting patterns and, and as well as the uh, impact of these extremely traumatic events on, on voting patterns. So this is a good segue from what we were just talking about. One of the startling conclusions that, that I, I draw from this elections data is that uh, within these union states, partisan vote shares basically didn't change between 1860 and 1864 uh, overall, N- not really within the states and not really in terms of national margins. So you have arguably the most cataclysmic moments in American history. You have three quarters of a million Americans who are killed in this process and no movement in the polls. And so that's uh, another reason why, even with the calamity that we're now facing, it's not unreasonable to think that despite enormous events, the public might not move at all in terms of partisanship, at least. So that some of the other main conclusions that I, I draw from this, uh, individual events that historians often ascribe big electoral uh, effects to, um, like the, the fall of Atlanta, if, if you're familiar with that, um, just before the 1864 presidential election, um, it seems like Lincoln was on track for a re-election at about the level that he was p- before that, that took place. Um, and then uh, finally, in terms of casualties, uh, basically no effective casualties in Republican areas, but in areas that were already predisposed against uh, Republicans, the, the Democratic areas, 
their rationalization of the dead as senseless losses as opposed to heroic martyrs decreased Republican vote share in those Democratic bastions um, e- even more. So um, that was a little bit long, but I'm excited about this book because I think it um, broadens our perspectives on what partisanship is and what it can potentially do in terms of its relationship with open violence, um, as well as the extent to which under times of heavy polarization on the basis of party and its related identities, that people can rationalize just about anything to be consistent with what they already um, think in terms of their their party orientations. Hmm. So I, I, this also just reminds me, I wanted to emphasize that the, what you were talking about before, I think if correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of those data are coming from giant nationally representative surveys that happen around election mm-hmm. times and all sorts of things. Where are the data for this coming? I mean, are, are the are the votes from all that time ago logged somewhere? Like what? That surprises me when you started talking. I was like, oh, this is some like historical. But then it's like the same kind of data that you look at now. So what what, what kind of data are you drawing on for this? Yeah, that's that's a, a really important. Uh, and challenging point. So uh, in contrast with the kinds of data that I normally work with, which are surveys and experiments and survey experiments, either that other people have collected in the last 70 years or so, or that I've conducted myself, this, unfortunately, there were no surveys that I could go back and and uh, draw upon that other people had done. And, and NSF did not fund my application for a time machine. So... <laughs> So the, the main political variables are partisan vote choice at the local level, in contrast with a more individualized unit of analysis in, in the term of art that we have with our modern data. This was ecological or aggregated data for the most part, which presents its own challenges. But that is uh, collected at the county level going all the way back to the start of the country. One of the first data collections by um, ICPSR um, Inter-University Consortium for Political and Social Research. They collect data. And one of the first projects was to digitize county-level election results for president, House of Representatives, and governor in every state, in every county from the 1700s onwards. So that's the the data that I um, use for that. This this project is not possible without that that data collection. Um, Then the, the Local war participation and war experiences is based on a a digitized data set uh, from the American Civil War Research Database, which collected um, each state after the war created a a volume that listed all of the people to the best of their records uh, who participated in the war and whether they survived or died when they joined in the war and, and when they left whether they were drafted, whether they were kicked out, whether they were wounded and had to leave the service. About 20 years ago, uh, a company began digitizing those with volunteers. Over 500 people digitized those records. And so that's the most complete individual level record. And then I had to um, take those individuals and map them into counties to to be uh, usable um, with the other data that I had. And then census data, of course, uh, for local size of local populations, military age males, um, and other local traits that might be alternative explanations. So just an enormous amount of data, most of which I didn't originally c- collect myself, that other people had to, that this project would have been impossible without that. And basically, I just put them together and then also did 
thousands of hours of content analysis of partisan newspapers also, but that's, that's for another day. <laughs> that's super cool. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for being on the podcast and telling everybody about your research on political ideology. It was really great having you on. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, it was great to digitally meet you and to, to have our conversation. That'll do it for this episode of Opinion Science. Thanks to Nathan for coming on. Check out the show notes for a link to his website and keep an eye out for the new book he mentioned, which is coming out later this summer. For more about this show, visit opinionsciencepodcast.com or follow us at OpinionSciPod on Twitter or Facebook. Head on over to Apple Podcasts to check out our previous episodes where we've explored all sorts of things. Word of mouth, film criticism, moral disgust, and more. And, you know, while you're already downloading the previous episodes, might as well rate and review the show. Help people find us. Okay. The end. Bye.